I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Welcome to the Times Opinion podcast. It's our review of 2015 and what a year it's been. I'm Philip Webster. I'm editor of the Red Box Morning Bulletin. And today we have Anne Treneman, Stuart Wood and Daniel Finkelstein. It's been a terrible year for getting it wrong. The Westminster bubble called the election wrong, the Labour leadership wrong, and it still can't quite believe what happened in Scotland. But just say that Jeremy Corbyn is right and he will increase Labour's vote, as happened in Oldham. Is Britain heading towards an American situation where half the electorate passionately believe one thing and the other half passionately believe the other? Is the bubble capable of acknowledging that politics has changed, possibly if not forever, then certainly for the time being? 2015 was the year when politics changed fundamentally in Britain. It saw the rise and further rise of politics outside the traditional Westminster cartel, from the social movement that underpinned a triumphant SNP to the Corbynista movement that overwhelmed the Labour leadership election. The campaigns around the EU referendum next year will not only split the Conservative Party, but further shift the centre of political activity away from Westminster. Is this shift towards movement politics a passing phase or a fundamental transformation of the way politics works? After Jeremy Corbyn was selected as Labour leader, there was a good deal of debate about whose fault it was. Ed Miliband's, Len McCluskey, Tony Blair, Andy Burnham. Well, my candidate for the person to blame is David Cameron. By occupying the centre and proving a winner, he pushed Labour to the fringes. 2015 showed that David Cameron is one of the most underestimated and dominant figures of the modern era three very interesting subjects there. And Treneman, so can't we just blame the pollsters? <laughs> well, of course we can blame the pollsters, and I, and I think that we all do. But the fact that we were all completely taken in by the pollsters, and we really did spend the entire election sort of chewing over numbers about tiny little marginals and this and that. And actually, there were so many things that we failed to see that were so obvious. One was the collapse of the Lib Dem vote, which... You know, to this day, people still keep quoting Tim Farron and stuff like that. They have eight MPs and only four ever show up. You know, I mean, they are, they were, they were completely ruined by being in coalition. 
you know, looking back over that, it happened very early on. We haven't, the bubble forgives quite easily. It forgave the tuition fee. The bubble kind of has its own rules. And I just think those rules are now, because of this change in politics, it's very, very hard for the bubble to accept that certain things have happened. Danny? My view is actually that what happened in this year, on, as far as the bubble was concerned, is that it improved its understanding of what was happening rather than what was happening fundamentally changed. It, it should have been clear to uh, people working in Westminster and to political journalists that the things that move politics are only the very, very big things, that lots of the things that we write about are, are noise rather than signal, and yet, for some reason, it was not clear, and so therefore there was this tension between what appeared to be being shown by uh, the ups and downs of opinion polls and what we should have known from the fundamentals. I mean, statistical work shows very clearly the relationship between economics uh, and uh, outcomes. You could you could draw on a graph the relationship between leadership and uh, election results and we ignored those in favour of the ups and downs of Westminster. You know, even David Cameron, for example, thought there would be quite mm. a lot of repercussion to Maria Miller's departure from the Cabinet and David David's inability to deal with that properly. And obviously there wouldn't be, because most people don't know who she is and people yes. have forgotten that incident. She and was what the happened, woman. And ever. what I think happened will, I hope, produce a permanent improvement in political journalism and in, in political analysis, which is the recognition that lots of things that appear to us to matter, not so much to the country, but certainly politically, actually don't matter. And so therefore I, I think that... Of course there's been a change in Britain, there's a change all the time. But has there been a change in fundamental political attitudes? You know, I'm very struck by reading about the assassination of Spencer Percival in 1812. Mrs Percival was in Great George Street at the time and she heard about the assassination of her husband because of the cheering in Parliament Square. And um, that is... Uh, I think another is, column's coming on here. <laughs> that, the, 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 the truth is there's always been a lot of antagonism towards po- politicians and the political establishment. There's always been an anti-Westminster feeling. What's changing is that we may be understanding that in a way that previously we haven't. Stuart, Stu, I... uh, you were working for Ed Miliband up to and during the election. Is Anne right in saying that we should all, have all spotted that the, for example, that the Lib, Lib Dem vote was collapsing? Or was that something that happened well, we late on we didn't spot it either I mean, and i think i mean if you look back I, I agree with much of what danny said if you look back there were some obvious sort of broad primary color things going on that we should have picked up we all should have picked up you commentators us in politics one is the collapse of the lib dems and the brilliant brutal assassination of the lib dems mm. over five years by by the conservatives we spotted with two weeks to go that cameron was cancelling appointments in labor marginals and going to the southwest and we were wondering did he really think he could clean up there of course he did and he was right yeah the, the the whitewash of labor in scotland it was it was one of those things where the stats were clear but everyone thought there would be a comeback some of us were more sceptical maybe but there was a hope on our side there would be and there wasn't but I agree with Danny that this was an election let's face it about um, the economy and trust in leadership those two things explain a huge amount of it at the margins I mean the Tories win in my view because of the assassination of the Lib Dems that makes the marginal difference between an unstable hung parliament and a very small Tory government but the brute things going on are, I think, clear. And I think the closeness of the polls seduced people who were very confident that Labour would lose in the commentariat away from that confidence in the last six months and thought, my goodness, why, why are we not getting it right? And it turned out they were probably right more yeah. than they thought. The one thing I think the comment, not just the commentariat, but the 
everyone has missed is, is the Labour leadership election. I think that's a more serious problem in the analysis of how politics works. And for me, there's lots of, we'll, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but there's a lot of things going on there. I think from the presses and the commentariat's point of view, there's, a, there's a, almost this view that unless you're on the centre-right of the Labour Party, you just there's no, there's no way you can possibly win. There is no way you could possibly win. At some point, Labour's going to come back to its senses. And the spectacle of not just someone on the left and the very left of the Labour Party winning, but winning by a country mile, I think just took the entire Westminster yeah. class by storm. Now, I think the, re- the repercussions of that, I think, are huge, actually, because I think there is something going on there we'll talk about later, maybe, yeah. which, is, which is different. But the first, I think Danny and Anna sort of right. There were these well, big things which we, which we missed. But we were talking about the sort of assassination of the Lib Dems, which clearly yeah. was a major factor. It well, they allowed been, themselves it, to it, be assassinated. Well, it wouldn't, have been, so, it wouldn't have been so easy, would it, without the SNP... The SNP made it easier for the Tories to ass- assassinate the uh, the Lib Dems, Absolutely. their coalition partner. And no one ever wants to talk about the SNP. I mean, immediately after the referendum was, you know, won by Better Together, who, of course, aren't Better Together, up in Scotland, everyone in Westminster quit talking about it again. Mm. Um, so, you know, we had that sort of thing. All of a sudden, everyone realised that there was this problem up in Scotland. They cancelled PMQs. Everyone love-bombed for a while. And then it, they got the result. And honestly, within a week, it was like it never happened. Yeah. Now, the election brought that back again. So that's, it's like Westminster just can't get there. And they can't get there with what the what is probably going to happen in Scotland. And I think that you have to kind of look very seriously now at the concept of another referendum. But those kind of politics will change Westminster forever. And people just don't want to talk about it. It's like... If we just don't talk about it, it won't exist. So, I mean, it's it's interesting what Anne's saying, Danny. Sort of the um, Westminster switched off a bit like the Chelsea defence uh, occasionally, um, <laughs> regularly. And um, you know, it's true, isn't it? We 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 got obsessed with Scotland, and then Scotland disappeared from the airways. I think part of the problem is that no one really quite knows what to do about it. The Labour Party is in. Uh, very difficult position in Scotland it's difficult to see how it recovers from that position the moment it ceases to be the natural party of people who are from their from a labor demographic and that's what happened in Scotland uh, what actually what future is there what, who do they represent and therefore it's very difficult for them to recover the conservative party's base has been eroded first of all by not uh, changing the rate system and then at the f- election after that by changing the rate yeah. system and in two goes it's really been um, you know now finds it difficulty coming back from from its position so it's very difficult if you talk about it where does it lead you uh how, what would you do uh so i think that's probably one of the reasons why they uh, people don't talk about it uh, but i'm not convinced by this idea i mean i do think scotland you know there is obviously the strongest point because the party system has changed in scotland but it may be the labor party leadership may represent just as you were talking Stuart, i was wondering about this reversion to the mean as opposed to a departure from it in other words that what tony blair and gordon brown represented was pulling the labor party so far away from its democratic socialist moorings uh, and what uh, happened uh, that it, that uh, in the end, it was unsustainable, and it's pinged back. Uh, admittedly, slightly overshot with Jeremy Corbyn, but uh, it's sort of pinged back towards a view closer to the mainstream you know, view that the Labour Party's held of the economy since its foundation. Should we sort of move seamlessly into Stuart's um, subject matter there, because um, we're sort of coming on to it. I mean, Stuart, your point is that something is happening there in the in the Labour Party that, again, 
we haven't really all got yet. D Danny is saying that Brown and Blair took the Labour Party away from its moorings, but surely it took the Labour Party where the public wanted it to be at that point, three elections in a row. Sure, no doubt about that. I mean, I, I, don't, th I, I don't think that the period before Blair was a period of radical leftism. I don't think Wilson, Callaghan and Gateskill can be seen as, as that. But I actually think the transformation is not really about left, leftness, rightness and that. I think there's something about the culture of politics which is changing. Uh, and I don't think it's just about the Labour Party either. I, mean, I, think, I do think there's a case for the argument that this year has seen a, a change which won't revert back to a previous pattern of movement politics breaking through. And I'm not dewy-eyed about it. I don't think that we are living in a kind of world of, like the movie Pride, where campaigns are everything and, and Westminster just is spectators. But there is, there is definitely some kind of struggle going on in our party at the moment between a kind of traditional politics, which is done in Westminster, which yeah. is done by MPs who are representatives, not delegates or members, and a different view of the Labour Party, which is a, which is, is a multi-hundred-thousand-member club of people who are passionate about our cause, who see Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of them, uh, and who want the Labour Party to deliver what, what they want. And I think that there's a huge tension between those two things. I think the Scottish referendum is, is, a, is a watershed moment in this respect, particularly on the left. I mean, the left is in crisis everywhere in Western Europe, in advanced countries. It's not just here. And any explanation for Labour's problems this year that's just about Britain, I think, misses that mm. at its peril. But there's something about the emergence of popular politics, that the pro-independence movement in Scotland was in trouble when it was just an SNP operation. When it became whether you b believe this or not, but when it came perceived widely as a grassroots expression of optimism and patriotism for Scotland, it was infectious, so much so that people who are Labour supporters throughout their lives felt they couldn't publicly oppose it. And I think something of that was captured by the Corbynistas, and it set up these fundamental tensions in, the, in our party from now on, MPs versus the membership, the project of politics being about winning power in Westminster versus the idea of democracy as an end in itself and engaging people as an end in itself. And I think that the interesting next challenge is whether this kind of politics infects the right of the political spectrum as well. I think it's fascinating that UKIP has not yet become a kind of populist movement in the way that the Corbynistas have and the SNP did. And I wonder, I think the Leave campaign, whatever you think of the European mm. issue, it has a lot of energy and freshness about it. They have a lot of confidence that they can become a sort of popular movement. I have no idea whether they will or not, but I think if they do, it will transform the right of our politics in the way the SNP and Corbynism have transformed the left. Follow up on that. Do you, do you think this would have happened within Labour if Corbyn hadn't been elected? Do you think this surge of grassroots uh, interest in politics would have happened if Andy Burnham had got in or, uh, or Yvette Cooper? Well, is, it, is it something, because I think we all sort of agree that the Corbyn election was a bit of an accident in the sense that he got on the ballot paper, but having got there, he won quite easily. Well, I think, I think the, the margin of Corbyn's victory shows that if someone else had, if Corbyn had been excluded in some way, I think it would have set up a pretty horrible few years of, a, of grassroots resentment. Yeah, it would have happened, yet more, yeah. A, another iteration of grassroots mass resentment at what they perceived to be another heave of New Labour. I'm not saying that's how yeah. I see it, but that's how it was definitely yeah. received. Like, I worked for Ed Miliband for five years. That's how Edward was seen, and it frustrates him and me hugely that he was seen as the last incarnation of New Labour rather than a break from it. But that's the way it was widely seen, particularly in our past. Party, and probably more widely than that. So I don't think it's an accident he won, and I, I don't think that would have gone away. No. I think whether it would have been channelled through the Labour Party or externally is an interesting question. And in a funny way, Corbyn is channelling people who 
find their home in the sort of atmosphere around the left's political parties rather than in them usually. And I think that's the interesting experiment that yeah. is underway now. Danny, do you see this going to the happening on the right? Is, yeah, I think uh, it was a very arresting thesis of Stuart's, and I think I think probably um, it's got a lot of truth in it because there is a um, the, and it's to do with the media. So I, be- I believe that the creation of um, mass political parties is a response to the ability to uh, create newspapers. Before that, uh, before there was a oh. sort of politics of factionalism, and in the, the late uh, 1800s, um, when part first parties and then individuals began to create mass media newspapers and everyone had to organize themselves to get into that mass newspaper in order to appeal to their local electorates people stopped having power at the local level and by patronage at the local level and begun to work towards national political parties and social media which reduces the the ability of of blockbuster newspapers and media to be the intermediating factor social media will also transform politics and it will i've I've long predicted this would happen it will make the political parties much more decentralised, it will produce much more diversity, it will make whipping a lot more difficult uh, and it will make governing in our current system, which is through a legislature in which the executive is dependent on the confidence of the legislature harder, and it is doing that uh, and it will continue to do that. I'm just a bit more wary of talking about the politics of movements and uh, I think there's undoubted this media change will change the way that politics will be done but I still think there's a sort of clash of interests that politics represents uh, won't be so easily removed um, and that we will get more of a reversion to the meaning that Jeremy Corbyn's election is at least as much accident as it is popular movement. And you've you've recently stopped working at Westminster to be our brilliant theatre critic. I mean, what does it look like to you now? I think Europe... Just being away for a few weeks. I think no one is dealing with Europe. I think just from the outside you can see... I mean, people... The same old, same old about Europe, but it's going to be a major, major, like, grassroots thing. Everyone's going to have an opinion. It will be like Scotland... The people will be talking about it, I think, because it's such a huge change. And I think the Leave campaign, you know, just like we all said up in Scotland, you know, he just somehow got the flag on his, you know, Alex Salmon managed to get the flag on his side. You know, he managed to get sort of Braveheart somehow with the SMP. And the Leave campaign probably will do the same with, with patriotism and Britain. And I think at the moment, you know, it's all kind of Faragey and he's, I mean, there's a side of Farage a lot of people don't like but if they can make that into a positive then it's going to be... Or a find big, a, a big figurehead who's not Farage I suppose. Yeah, um, so I just think yeah. I think it's, I think the, the movement politics, or whatever you want to call it, um, on these big issues I think people want to get involved and that was the lesson of Scotland. People could hardly wait to talk to you about politics. Normally, you know, when you're doing Vox Pops up there, you're trying to get people to talk to you. They're like, no, they're too busy. They're... But I, try to get them to be quiet. I mean, they just were sort of could hardly yeah. wait to be talking I about it. I think the intensity of Europe will be less. But it will still, you know, I mean, I'm not, I just think it will be, it won't be uh, non-existent, uh, but it will be less. I mean, it's just I mean, that's, oh no. I don't. I don't draw that. But that's not my sort of hypothesis. That is, you know, when you look at focus groups and things like that, it is less at the moment. But I, is there a sense in which the the pro pro Europe campaign is a bit of a sort of sleeping giant at the moment? It's quite interesting. Well, we had um, recently John Major coming out, and suddenly he, there seemed to be one. It seemed to be the most sensible argument you'd heard around for, um, <laughs> you know, forever. And he, um, of course, he, the, the, the Remain campaign has this very big 
difficulty that many of the people who mm. want to associate it want, don't want to do so until the negotiations are finished and that gives of course the Leave campaign a big advantage. The, the split in the Leave campaign is is quite serious um, yeah. Not uh, and one of the reasons it's quite serious is over the issue of um, immigration. Uh, yeah. Bizarrely enough I think the Faragists are right on this if you want to win, an, win, win a referendum for Leave. Leave does depend on people not wanting mass immigration and if they are not prepared in a confident and strong way to deal with that issue they won't win the referendum uh, and um, Farage and Aaron Banks whatever else you might uh, think of them uh, they do perceive that and they're correct I think. I agree more with Anne actually on this I think. Hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uncharted, in an uncharted territory on Europe compared to even a few months ago because I think the migration crisis out of the Middle East is changing the dynamic of, of this quite a lot. I think it's making Cameron think he has to get on with it in a hurry. I also like between thinking Cameron has made a historic error in hitching the case for staying in to a set of reforms that he actually knows he's never going to get, which I think could be a historic mistake, or thinking he didn't have a choice given the kind of party he leads. I mean, I don't know which of the two to believe, but I do think it's a problem that the spec... I mean, there's lots of people out there who want to make an in-principle case for Europe and are being told, oh, wait a minute, we, we, you've got to do it in light of the deal that's going to be made. Yeah, this, I mean, it's this a this real problem for, for, the, for the case, This I think. is a point that Major made in, in his <laughs> interview, saying that, you know, the, the, the Europe is far too important to depend on this, this exactly. renegotiation. Yeah. People feel strong from doing that. I do, I, but I think there is at least a plausible case for the following to happen, almost like a mirror image of the Scottish referendum. But the referendum happens and there's a sort of politics of fear instrumental case based on trade statistics and unemployment for staying in. And there's a kind of romantic, fresh, patriotic case, which some people will think is crazy, but others will think is attractive for leaving. Uh, it's quite possible that I think that, that the staying in will win in the short term, but the long-term effects will be to sort of set alight the, the more radical de- pro-democracy, you know, lose the orthodoxy politics, both on the right of the spectrum, the Daniel Hannan part of the Tory party, and on the left, the sort of... And the left, as, a, as, as I've said before in this very show, um, is getting more anti-European. I was going uh, to say... Quick well, rate. So uh, I, I think the future, funnily enough, after a European referendum may belong 
to the more parochial but democratic right and left compared to the more technocratic clump in the centre. I, mean, I think that's something both anybody parties who, should worry about. Anybody who thinks that he's going to set light to the Euroscepticism <laughs> on the right that hasn't lived in the right for the last 20 years. You know, in the 97 general election, I spent almost all my time dealing with the fact that you couldn't get anyone to shut up about it. Um, and so um, this, this, is, this is just the latest iteration of a leader on the right trying as best as that... Uh, having this problem having basically had to be dealt with on the left as well uh, of a leader on the right trying desperately to deal with a problem that just does split the right for yeah. sort of fairly obvious and understandable reasons yeah. you know you can take the view that it will be successful in uh, reducing tension on it or you can take the view that it'll make it worse it's difficult to, to judge and you won't be able to judge that until afterwards but what you can't I think seriously say is this is an issue that hasn't bothered right before and now suddenly we're having this referendum and it'll all be really really difficult no, I mean it's been I th- appalling before, but I think it could be a, a kind of more permanent division than before. That's what I think. Well, if if this uh, the new Labour mass membership results eventually in Labour changing its overall stance on Europe, this ain't going to go away any more than the Scottish. I think we're quite away from away. that at the moment, but yeah. I think you know there's definitely signs that that's something to think about in the next yeah. few years. Yeah. yeah, I think that the. I mean, it is quite funny, isn't it? I mean, Westminster will, but the real, the actual democracy, the actual people are often extremely irritating. To mm. all, to people in the bubble and the people, the elected politicians, because they will insist on doing things that are unpredictable. And I really do think that they are going to care about Europe in a way that they did not care about AV. And maybe, I mean, up in Scotland, they cared about, you know, I just about Scotland, but I think it'll be in the same kind of way. And yeah. I don't know why I think that. I just yeah, feel like right. people want to care, people are interested. Can I just yeah. object to this the little, just a tiny bit to this idea of the bubble, right? So what the bubble consists of, pe- what the bubble consists of, are the small number of people who actually pay any attention to politics. They have a combination of two things. One is they have a much better understanding than most people of what goes on in politics, uh, much more sophisticated. But secondly, they have a slightly over-sophisticated view because they um, think that a lot of the things that they know about matter. But it is not the case. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it was certainly the case when I was running for Parliament that I had a much better understanding of what the electorate thought and how other people lived their lives than at any other point in my career to that point, having worked, for example, in technology or as a trade journalist. As a trade journalist, I don't have a clue. Um, but when you go out and vote... So the people who work in the bubble are, in fact, among the most well-informed and most in-touch people in the country. Uh, and um, I the, completely disagree with you. Yeah, because... because <laughs> yeah, OK, let's do... You know, I, I can't really... Com- no, 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 if, if you take... The bubble, <laughs> My, you know, my, 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 my mum, for example, is a maths teacher, right? Um, you know, uh, she knows what other teachers think, and I mean, she's retired mm. now, but and she probably knows what other pensioners think and what people in Hendon Central think, you know. But it's obviously not her job to make a study of what people in Scotland think about de- decentralisation, right? Um, and, you know, she read that in the newspaper, uh, and um, the the idea that somehow um, because people are professional politicians the other people understand more than them is just the opposite of the truth. They understand democracy because they are they are democracy. I mean they are But but they're each individual (laughs) person. They they understand their own view (laughs) they understand their own view and just like I do and like you do but the idea that the idea that someone becomes much more in touch by the fact that they don't know anything about politics is absurd right? Obviously the people who know something about politics they know they spend more time studying what other people think most of the time most other people are not remotely interested in what other people think they're interested in their own the the only sense in which they're a bubble 
in people in politics is because they're upper middle class a lot of the time. That is a bubble, but that's a bubble if you're upper middle class and involved in politics or upper middle class and not involved in politics. And in politics is one of the few places where someone who's upper middle class encounters someone who isn't because most of the time people who are upper middle class <laughs> never meet anybody who isn't. Like, are, you going, are you going to referee this bubble? I, I will. I'm happy to, to do that. I, I like this in defence of the bubble argument. I, I, I think there's something... The Westminster bubble for me is actually something slightly different to what Danny's talking about. For me, the Westminster bubble is, a, is it, those people who think that politics is about what happens in Westminster. That's, that's the thing that is under threat. Oh. Now, in a way, good MPs have known that that's nonsense all, always. And there are people like Stella Creasy in our party and <coughs> others in, the, in all the parties that have never practised a politics that's just about you know obsession with Westminster. But what's happened in Scotland, what's happening in the Labour Party, and I think what will happen on the right in the Euro camp- Europe campaign is, a, is challenging the very idea that politics is fundamentally about what happens in, in the Palace of Westminster. I think that, I think, mm. is, is the, where the, the bubble is, is, is under few, da- in danger of cracking. And one of the very few places you find people who understand that politics isn't what happens in Westminster is the people in Westminster, because they're the people who give some thought to the question of where politics takes place, like you do. Uh, and so, therefore, in the bubble is one of the very few places you've got any chance of finding any who's it. in touch with what happens outside the bubble. <laughs> Danny, Danny the bubble boy, I like this. <laughs> well, look, we'll, um, I'm sure we're not going to escape the bubble because we're now going on to yeah. the um, third bubble. Um, third subject that we've got down here. And, uh, and Danny is contending that um, David Cameron is really the reason why Jeremy Corbyn is now the leader of the and he's one of the most underrated politicians in uh, modern times. So I, mean, I believe this strongly enough to allow myself to be willing to look a bit of an idiot because as everyone knows <laughs> I'm because everyone knows I'm an ally of David Cameron's and I and I regard him highly and I share quite a lot of his opinions. So obviously there's a degree of preposterousness about me being the person that suggests this, but I I think it's true enough that I'm willing to risk um, uh, yeah. looking a bit of a you fool to say it. The starting point is this. I think all of us would agree that Tony Blair was a very formidable, dominant political figure. And yet, read uh, Andrew Rawnsley's books, for example, and you will, and they are full of, replete with the s- tactical and strategic errors made by Tony Blair. In other words, very good, dominant political figures, Margaret Thatcher's another example, make copious numbers of errors. My contention, therefore, is not that David Cameron is politically infallible or that he does not make, you know, a large share of errors and we can set round and identify them. My point is that the nature of his personality, uh, his ability to project himself, the political positions that he's taken, the balance he's managed to strike between his personal appeal and the progress he's been able to make on some of his, what one might loosely call ideological objectives, marks him out as a very skilled politician. And that he is underestimated because while people are willing to accept that of Blair and they're willing to accept that of Thatcher, almost part of Cameron's appeal and his skill is they don't assign that to him. And yet, if you look at his political record from the moment he was selected to to now, he has enjoyed immense political success because of his dominant political skill and personality. When I when he first was selected as a candidate, he asked me to go and interview him uh, in lieu of Jeremy Paxman. I was a pretty miserable alternative for Jeremy Paxman, but the idea was I would just ask him some political questions. And about three questions in, I thought to myself, my goodness, this guy is really, really capable. And when I watch him now, 
knowing how difficult a lot of political things are, I think to myself, this is a very seriously politically capable person. And as I say, I think that's sufficiently strongly to be worthy of analysis and willing to make a fool of myself to promote it. But does he avoid mistakes by avoiding decisions? Um, well, obviously, one of the things that you... Uh, let's take the Heathrow uh, d- decision uh, or... Um, non-decision. Uh, or non-decision. You could describe that as an, uh, a political error, but sometimes you put things off for very... I mean, fox hunting and Blair was a good example of that because they're insoluble political problems, right? I, I absolutely uh, would hope that he would choose Heathrow, for example, but then I'm not the leader of a political party. So mm. one of the skills that you have as a politician is to um, decide that you're never going to make a decision on favourable basis. You know, so, for example, he could easily make a decision on Heathrow, split the Conservative Party and never end up building a runway. Uh, so uh, he's got to make that calculation. As opposed to just never building a runway. As opposed to never building... <laughs> yes, but, but that's better, of those two options. Only for the right? Tory party. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, uh, well, um, no, because in both, uh, in both circumstances there's no runway. Uh, as it so happens, I think, actually, that you could make a decision, and I think he should. Uh, but um, <laughs> no, but 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 uh, you know. But on the other hand, he may actually be more skilled in this than I am. So that's an example of. Uh, but but you can't, I think, refute my thesis by giving some examples of decisions you wish he'd made that he hadn't made, or even where ones where we all agree that he's made an error because nobody's infallible. Infallible. I just say that overall. You know, there was the chart. Oh, my last point is the Charles Clark books, which are excellent uh, if anyone wants them this year on political leadership, has got a table in it. The, the the leaders who have won the most numbers of seats cumulatively over their career, and um, and uh, top I think is Campbell Bannerman, and second is Peel, and third is the Marquis of Salisbury, and fourth in the seventy one leaders they've been since nineteen thirty two since eighteen thirty two is David Cameron, and he's he's there, and he he's never had a, a real threat to his leadership throughout throughout. No, but 10 I years. think is he a great all, leader, Anne? No, I absolutely. Well, he, I I don't think he is. He's, and I think that. Personally, he when he began, he was a man everyone he was wanted to meet. He was very warm, and he would walk down the street, and people would come up to him and really shake his hand and talk to him. And now, of course, he's lost quite a lot of that because of security, but also because he does have a tendency to withdraw. I think, and now when he goes out in public, it's a very different kind of thing. But I do think his he he has a thing where he doesn't like making difficult decisions, and we've seen that in Scotland uh, a lot. And where he doesn't really kind of want to go for the fight. You know, it takes... In the election, we went along for, you know, ages with him sort of not doing very much. Those ridiculous speeches with his 15 points and 45 sub-points. Then all of a sudden, he was told he had to go be passionate Dave. And, you know, it was ridiculous. We went to things. We weren't, we, there were no chairs in the room. We weren't allowed to sit down because we had to jump up and down with Dave. And so, like, finally, he was shot out of a cannon, and he, was, he, he can turn it on when he wants to. But the, Europe, Heathrow, he has finally made a decision on Syria. But, you know, there, there are lots of things that he would... He doesn't mind the long grass. The long grass is a very nice place where Dave is. And I would also say that it's not just Dave who won the election. First of all, I think Labour lost it. But second of all, I think that George, having George as his team member, and they really are a team, yeah. is, is really the reason that he won, because George, no one's going to get in between George and Dave. And really, I think George is the more formidable politician. And George, George produced... Just watching him. Sorry. In Ed's, Miliband's office, how did you rate 
the man you were up against? Well, I think look, he's he's a he's is a formidable political character. He's he's incredibly good parliamentary performer, which is hugely important for morale of the party and for the daily spe- the weekly spectacle of the joust between the leaders. I think he managed the coalition incredibly impressively. I think the 10-11 solidarity between numbers 10 and 11 that Anne talked about is a is a huge asset compared to a Labour before it as well. Um, all those things are in his favour. But the bit of Danny's thesis, which I, you know, I think is very interesting that I disagree with, is not just that he's a formidable prime minister and character of politics, but that he, w- he won because he was in the centre and that Jeremy Corbyn is the product of his occupation of the centre ground. I just don't think that's true. If you look at John Curtis's data about the election, Cameron is seen as further away from the middle than Ed Miliband is seen on the left away from the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the party that was most in the middle, where the public opinion is, is the Liberal Democrats, and they got absolutely annihilated. This was not a good. Exo- this was not an election to bear out the argument that the centre ground is where you win the elections from. Actually, Ca- Cameron, in my view, his, his impressiveness and probably the reason that he won was because he was more trusted with George Osborne with people's taxes uh, and was seen as a more impressive political figure as a leader of, of the country. Um, but actually, the centrism of David Cameron, I think you've seen two bursts of it in the last 10 years. One was when he became leader and the other was at a conference this year when he did a very impressive centre ground speech. At the time, I thought well, that could be a millstone around the neck of every other party for a long, long time. Increasingly, I think actually it's a millstone around his neck because it's the thing people will compare the thing the Conservatives do from now on with again and again because I think that he set out an agenda there which his own party doesn't want to buy into and particularly with the sense that Jeremy Corbyn is taking Labour off the pitch for a while which I'm not saying I agree with but that's the perception in Westminster very widely it it emboldens the right of the Conservative Party to think well sod this we can actually we can actually have a bit more true blue stuff here rather than sort of pretend we're something we're not so I, I, i'm not convinced I, I do believe that cameron in his in his bones is is a centrist character i think the flashes of it we've seen have been rare and i don't think it played an ex, it, it it plays an explanatory role in in the did you in, feel in it was one election. from the right though danny no i think i just think I, right I think it patently hasn't been i i think that um you can't be trusted with people's money and their taxes unless people think you're broadly speaking a, a sort of mainstream, a big mainstream political figure. As it so happens, um, as you would imagine, I always think there's more capacity for the Conservative Party to occupy the centre. And on election day, I wondered, have we done enough? It was Had it gone far enough? And the answer is it was just enough. But nevertheless, that was quite impressive. One of the things that's interesting about the, the Osborne relationship is that is a symbol of David Cameron's immense self-confidence. And I do th- I do think it is critical, and you know, unsurprisingly, I do think George Osborne's played. I do think George Osborne's played a very major role in the government's success, particularly on the economy. But I, but it's the ability, the willingness of somebody to be a big political figure to so much share the political command and um, uh, judgment making with somebody else that is a that is partly because David Cameron is supremely personally self-confident so in a very different figure to say Wilson for example or even Macmillan in that respect and and I think he will be judged favorably for it now of course, at the end of this government, just like they were at the end of Macmillan or Wilson or Blair, there will be a load of decisions that uh, you, we would be able to say, in theory, he might have been able to make, some of which he actually might have been able to make and some of which we just think he would. Sometimes he's playing off a weak hand. This is a person who formed a coalition government and managed to survive five years with the coalition government right to the end, managing not to give the Liberal Democrats their electoral reform that they wanted, still surviving, not admittedly having that thing happen over the House of Lords, still winning a majority 
majority in the election. And for all that one says, you know, he was he showed lassitude in the election or everything, he won a majority. <laughs> well, I'm going to finish by asking you all one question. Mm-hmm. Which year will David Cameron stand down as Prime Minister? Anne? Uh, 2017. 2017, Stuart? Yeah, I'd say 2017 as well. I think it's difficult for him to stay on much beyond the referendum. Danny? 2019. 20. Uh, that, 2017, if he loses the referendum, I don't think he'll lose the referendum, and he will go in 2019. And, and, I, and I also think he, that he wants to go. In 2019. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of set himself up to go at any time in this Parliament, really, hasn't he? I mean, he, he can yeah. once the referendum's out of the way, he can make the choice. Nobody's going to kick him out when he's all but said what, he's going to But watch go. the leadership candidate swarm, that's the thing. I mean, it's very yeah. difficult to retain that yeah. supreme yeah. position. Well, that was, uh, that was great. Thank you to Anne Treneman, Danny Finkelstein, Stuart Wood for a brilliant discussion. The last opinion podcast of the year will be one looking forward to 2016. So um, we'll have three more people in here talking about that. Don't forget, subscribe via iTunes. You can find out more on thetimes.co.uk. Don't forget to sign up to Redbox if you haven't already done so, thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox forward slash sign up. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.